Welcome again to Back to the Future Minute, the daily podcast where we analyze the movie Back to the Future, part two, one credit-filled minute at a time. I'm Scott Corelli. I'm Nick Jimenez in the news. And today we are going back to minute 105, which uh, begins with the credit for art director Margie Stone McShirley and ends with the... uh, the uh, credit for choreographer Brad Jeffries. Yeah. Um, I wonder. I wonder what exactly. Like, is that is is choreography is the, or choreographer is that like another word for like blocking? I wonder in, uh, if he was in charge of uh, blocking the dancing during the Enchantment Under the Sea dance. Oh, you're probably right. You're probably right. Um, you know, I just realized there's dancing in all three movies. Yeah. I always forget that there's a dance in the third movie. Yeah, there's like a like a hoedown. Yeah, yeah, hoedown. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Huh? Okay. The enchant- right. the enchantment under the um, California moon. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I. Uh, I did a little research on a few credits. I tried to do a few. I've got some credits today and I've got some credits Monday, uh, but, but Tuesday and Wednesday of next week, um, the credits were hard to look up. I'll, I'll get into that more, uh, when we get there, but the credits, the credits are laid out weird, um, in this, uh, cause the cast, like the cast credits are done like after all the technical credits. It's w- really weird. Yeah. Yeah, I've always uh, I've always wondered if there's like a template for for film credits or if it's just like however the, the, the yeah there is there's definitely a template mm-hmm. um, maybe it just wasn't as maybe the end credits like I don't know like maybe back in in you know eighties early nineties maybe the the closing credits had different rules than the uh, yeah, than the opening credits. Oh, yeah. I, I remember. Uh, I remember reading once that George Lucas had a bit of um, had a bit of uh, 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 conflict at first. Right. He, yeah. He he did. You know. He very famously did not want Star Wars to open with any opening credits. Right. That's why he's not in the Directors Guild. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's part of the reason why he didn't direct a movie from uh, A New Hope through to uh, Phantom Menace. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Has anyone ever done more for f- cinema with less of a filmography? No, I don't think so. It's crazy how how little films, how few films he's directed. Six. Yeah, that's it. Six, and there was a there was a gap of like thirty years, and three between... of them are, are not remembered very well. <laughs> yeah, very true. <laughs> Uh yeah, that's he's weird. Like making all these weird art house movies that he's like never going to show anyone. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, well, assuming he's actually doing that. Sure, um, I mean yeah, that that's that's kind of a yeah. I'm just directing these. You know, they blow your mind, but you're never going to see them. You're never. Gonna yeah, <laughs> exactly. I don't know if I I don't know if I trust that. Be, I, I, like, it's like it, it's like it's like yeah. I've got a million dollars. I just don't spend any of it. I just don't. Okay, so so you know, hopefully, many 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 years from now, you know, George Lucas, you know, becomes one with the Force, um, <laughs> and and they're like, oh my god, can we like, you know, they they crack open the the box, 
and they're like there's or like you know they they find like a usb driver like george's flicks with an x right and like and like oh my god let's watch all of george lucas's like Experiment. weird movies and then it's yeah. just like really shitty like darth maul fan movies <laughs> uh it's just it's all it's just it's just him obsessively trying to make jar jar work yeah it's like it's like jar jar as like but like by way of like frank miller Ovid best is just like begging to be like let, let go me go <laughs> no you signed the contract, Ahmed. <laughs> it's like those. It's like those Heath Ledger Joker videos. <laughs> oh, George, no. <laughs> burn, burn. His. Has anyone talked to Ahmed Best? No, um, one, no one talks to Ahmed Best. <laughs> uh, all right, so not Star Wars minute. So, um, so yeah, let's talk about. I've got. I've got a few credits for this minute. Uh, first one I want to talk about is Linda DeSina, whose name I love because she's the set decorator and her name has seen in it. Nice. Which I'm uh, I'm a fan of. Um, But yeah, so she she was the set decorator. And, you know, I really love set decoration. It's something that I always notice in movies because I think it helps – uh, like the the mise-en-scene of your movie, totally. like all of the stuff in the background. I, uh, like, yeah. it, it makes your movie look more professional. Mm-hmm. I remember watching um, this uh, web video when I was first starting out and like trying to direct a short film. And his web video was like, here's the number one thing that I could tell you to make your short film look more professional. Put things on the wall. Don't shoot in empty rooms. So many short films, and then he just starts going. He just starts throwing clips from all these like amateur films sure. where they didn't decorate the set, and it's just people speaking in like an empty room with white walls. And he's like, "This looks terrible." Yeah, yeah. And um, uh, and so ever since then, I've really taken notice of set decorators. And the Back to the Future movies, in my opinion, have some of the best set decoration ever. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, a movie a movie that I just saw, um, uh, Don't Breathe, had some great set de- set set decoration. I, I I there's a moment that I really I, I really wanted uh, you know, if you go see the movie, I wanna like ask you if you noticed it because there was like a little little like detail in a character's bedroom that like seriously made me like, Oh, you're a good filmmaker. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, that's such a cool little thing that probably no one's noticed. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I just, I really love uh set decoration. And so I, I wanted, when I saw this credit, I was like, well, let's, let's see what, uh, what old Linda has done. Uh, and I looked it up and she got her start on television. She did, uh, she worked on fantastic journey and Logan's run in the seventies. Um, Logan's run, Logan's run TV, I don't know the TV a, series. Yeah. I know there was a Logan's run television series. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there was. Um, but her first movie, all right, get mm-hmm. ready for this. Okay. Her first movie as a set decorator was Star Trek The Motion Picture. Oh, talk about blank walls. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Star Trek The Motion Picture, um, and then she eventually she went on to do Blade Runner in oh, 1982. Cool. Yep. Uh, she did Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension. Oh, man. In uh, 84. She did The Goonies and The Color Purple in 85. 
back to school, Harry and the Hendersons, Scrooged, Rain Man, uh, Defending Your Life. Oh, wow. Yeah. Rocketeer. Oh, man. Yeah. And then one that really surprised me uh, because, I mean, this this movie is basically all set decoration. Toys. Oh, yeah. I was going to say, like, all of these movies, you know, with a few exceptions, are really kind of famous for having a lot going on in them. You mm-hmm. know, like, particularly, like, Blade Runner and, like, Buckaroo Banzai and Toys. Mm-hmm. You know, those are all movies that really benefit from obsession and like repeat viewings you know because there's always like so much going on in like any given frame oh yeah rocketeer too rocketeer feels like such a lived-in world oh yeah yeah like the diner and like howard hughes's and his barn yeah 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 really the uh uh, the blimp mm -hmm. um all of that stuff or airship or whatever the heck that thing is like buckaroo bonsai i mean that's like it's like a whole world was created like in oh yeah absolutely um good for her so so yeah and and what i think is really interesting is that she only did part two yeah that is maybe because of the future stuff maybe they were like oh we need to get to senna yeah maybe i don't know but uh i thought that was really interesting um so yeah so so decena uh linda decena did the uh set decoration and then i looked up i i saw the camera operator uh Camera operator credit, uh, Raymond N. Stella. Um, And I wanted to look him up just to see what he became later. Because for the most part, you know, you don't – if you're a camera operator, you end up moving on to do other things. Like you become like a DP or or what have you, right? Mm -hmm. So I looked up this guy and um, he started out as an electrician and an assistant camera um on stuff in the 70s and then eventually became the camera operator uh he was he it looks like for the most part he was dean cundy's camera operator oh. he worked he worked on all of the th- same things that dean cundy worked on so he did you know halloween and the fog and escape from new york and the thing uh, and, uh, and all that stuff. So he was the co- camera operator on a lot of the same stuff that Dean Cundy was com- camera operator on. Um, eventually, however, he did become a director of photography. Okay. Uh, and he started out as a director of photography. He does, he would do second unit in feature films, mm-hmm. right? So he, he was second unit DP on Apollo 13. Oh, wow. Casper, Braveheart, uh, Dante's Peak, The Parent Trap, Basketball, Blade, <laughs> um, Wild Wild West, oh, Serenity, okay. and oh, wow. and uh, has gone on to be the uh, director of photography and second unit director on CSI New York. Okay, uh, he did he did all of that show. That, that's a steady paycheck. I remember <laughs> was one. Absolutely. Um, and then he was also the cinematographer on a few things. Okay. Uh, he, he did a few movies here and there, but it's mostly stuff that you haven't heard of. But the one thing that you have heard of that he was the main director of photography on, which was from 1999. So that's when – from 1999 to 2003, he was the director of photography for Buffy the Vampire Slayer. 
Wow. Um, and which means that he became director of photography when that show uh, shifted from 60 millimeter to 32 millimeter. Yes. Yeah. Very, very, very famously. And uh, God, yeah. I mean, and, and that show, you know, you know, it's really, really weird. This isn't even like the best thing on that filmography. But as soon as you said Buffy, the first visual, like the thing my, my brain did was it started playing moments from Casper. Oh, and I was like, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I don't know. Like, there's kind of a, yeah. And like, I mean, clearly he enjoyed, I mean, that's cool that clearly like Whedon enjoyed working with him because like that explains Serenity, but. Uh, right. Yeah. That's really cool that he did because that's such a, uh, you know, especially for its era, you know, before television was allowed to really have a visual palette or a visual language, like Buffy really does have still to this day, like a very distinct look style especially uh starting in season three yeah yeah i mean yeah yeah uh just that was when the show started doing its most daring work you know Mm -hmm. and you can tell uh you know joss whedon probably wanted him to be the dp on serenity uh but you know film being what it is they probably were not into the idea of having a tv guy Sure. Uh, Universal probably did wouldn't approve him as director of photography. Who, most who, likely. Was, who was the director of photography for Serenity? And I know I'm putting you on the spot, but uh, I, I can just click through okay, and cool. see what I can see. Um, I want to find out who to blame for that. <laughs> I don't know who to blame. <laughs> um, let's see. Full cast. Where's the crew? I hate the new IMDb. It's I mean, so it's not stupid. new anymore. Yeah, no, I, it's, it's really difficult to figure out how to do this um okay yeah, i think i think i think i mean i think serenity is a great movie but i don't i think there's a lot of weird visual choices that kind of uh, i i think kind of undermine the the story it's uh jack and green okay who's sort of uh he's like a workhouse he's, sure. he's like a oh, yeah i mean he's a journeyman yeah, he he doesn't. It doesn't look like he has any sort of particular style because he did Serenity, but he also did Forty Year Old Virgin. <laughs> okay, and those two things. I mean, they, he did those the same year, and those two things couldn't look more like not alike. You yeah. know? Yeah. So, um, it looks like he's a guy that they stick with directors who are first timers. First timers. Yeah. Okay. Because he yeah. also did Unforgiven and yeah. He shot Unforgiven and the 40-year-old virgin. Yeah, that's and amazing. Serenity. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like when uh, when, when Yamus Kaminsky uh, uh, shot Funny People and you were like, that, that, this looks beautiful for, for a Judd Apatow movie. Uh-huh. Yeah, so that's uh, – that's, anyway. So uh, the last credit – so yeah, that was, uh, that was Raymond Stella. Um, the last credit for this minute is Michael yeah. Lentieri, okay. uh, who did the special effects. He was in the special effects department, oh. the, the head of it, um, the supervisor. Yes. And uh, he was the – he did a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff. Um, starting in the early 80s, he did special effects for things like The Last Starfighter and Fright Night hey. and Poltergeist 2. Uh-huh. He did Star Trek Four: The Voyage Home. Hey, uh, which is of Eastwick, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Nice, uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, oh. 
Hook, Death Becomes Her, mm-hmm. Jurassic Park, uh, Flintstones, Casper. Oh, so he's an Amblin man. Yeah. Matilda, no, Mars he Attacks. He was born an Amblin man. <laughs> Lost World, um, Jurassic Park 3, AI, Minority Report. Oh, jeez. Yeah, Ang Lee Hulk, Seabiscuit, Series of Unfortunate Events, Superman Returns, Dead Man's Chest. Um, Wow. Yeah, I mean, this guy, he's he's done a lot. Yeah, he's still working. Uh, Let's see, Larry Crown. Apparently, there's special effects in Larry Crown. Oh, yeah, there are. (laughs) Uh, Jurassic World. Uh, And, and, uh, yeah, his last... His last movie was Jurassic World and Secret in Their Eyes. And then he's got – he's doing the Westworld um, TV series. Interesting. And he just did the movie Keeping Up with the Joneses. Okay, yeah. that um, Yeah, that uh, – you know what? I, I was watching the trailer for that I mean, because it's like before every goddamn movie right now. Um, and every time – I'm like watching the trailer for Kicking Up with the Joneses. I'm like, this is a waste of everyone's time. Why? Like, what is this? And then it's like from the director of Superbad. And I was like, Greg Matola directed this? It's like I forget every time. Uh-huh. And it's it's just enough for me to like kind of be intrigued. Because I'm like, Matola. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I get I get that. Uh, Matola also, uh, that's that's the Paul director, right? Yeah, yeah, Paul, super bad. Um, I, if I'm, 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 I might be talking out of my butt, but I think he directed the newsroom pilot. Oh, interesting. Oh, yeah, no, yeah, you're right. I think that's right. I think that's right. Yeah, he's an interesting, yeah, and Your Highness, which, uh, you well, know, <laughs> um, they can't all be winners. Yeah. Um. So yeah, so that's those are the three credits that I sort of. Uh, I sort of picked. Um, and then I thought uh, we could wrap up the Paradox Draft um, mm-hmm. in today's episode. So last time we talked about the Paradox Draft, uh, what was happening was basically the end of 1985A. Yes. Uh, so they, they disappeared and then they show up in 1955. Well, in the Paradox Draft, they cut out all of that stuff before the enchantment of the under the sea dance, and you would cut directly to the enchantment under the sea dance. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we are now at the enchantment under the sea dance. Everything is pretty much working uh, the same way. You know, uh, Marty goes into the dance, sees uh, Biff and his gang and Strickland, and follows them outside, mm-hmm. and. Uh, he, uh, but the, the, but what happens here is that when Biff sends people, sends the gang back inside to like go get more booze, uh, old Biff shows up in the car and is like, "Hey, kid, get in the car." Okay. Uh, and so he goes and he sits in a strange old man's car in the dance, and that's when old Biff gives him the almanac and then just like drives away, uh, and then just like before, uh. Marty hops the stairwell and goes and reaches for the thing. And then, uh, and then, uh, you know, Strickland shows up, takes it. He follows Strickland. Strickland throws it out. It's the whole office scene. Everything happens exactly the same. Ooh, la, la, the whole thing. Right. 
Um, all of that happens. He goes and he steals. He he he, he punches Biff. Uh, takes the almanac just like before, except there's no that guy stole his wallet thing, um, which is a bummer. But oh. uh, yeah, so all of that is pretty much the same. He runs into the the gang. Uh, they go into the uh, uh, into the uh, dance, mm-hmm. following Marty. Um, see Marty sees Marty on the stage, and then they go after him. Same thing. Um, one of the first differences is that uh, instead of getting them all at once, he gets them one at a time, like each with one sandbag. Oh, um, <laughs> this is kind of weird. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's silly because it's just like, wh- like how would they not hear that one wh- – hear or sense that one of them is being just like knocked, knocked to the ground. He's just knocked to the ground with a sandbag. <laughs> right. So he gets them each one at a time. Everything works out. Uh, he goes outside. Um, though there is one thing that I wanted to note because while I was reading this, I got to that line where Doc says if he if they if they harm that other Marty, it could stop him from going back to the future, and we could create a paradox. And I'm just realizing that do paradoxes actually exist in this universe? You know, they're the the threat of them comes up a lot but i I'm, i can't really think of a time when one is actually brought home to roost so to speak does that make sense yeah because every time it something happens that would cause a paradox it always just creates another timeline right so wouldn't wouldn't if if marty didn't go back in time to 1955 wouldn't that marty uh beta marty wouldn't he just his new life would just be in 1955 and that would just create another timeline. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I guess, I guess ultimately, well, I guess the, the problem isn't so much a paradox. The problem would be Marty going home, right? Yeah, it would be, it would, it would suck for beta Marty. Well, not, well, who cares about beta Marty? He's not our hero. Okay. Um, my, my, I'm talking about our Marty. Okay. Right. Cause like if Marty doesn't, go back to the future would that change the future that marty would go back to eventually yeah like what what would happen how would he when would he discover that the consequences had even occurred i don't know <sighs> like when there's would, a lot of questions like would it just like reset and he'd be like oh no like would he even be aware of it or would he be like this is the way it's always been well no he would be aware of it because like i like like we've pointed out there is no butterfly effect it's all it's not butterfly effect time travel so like when marty comes back to 85 and everything's changed he doesn't have the memories of beta marty he just is living beta marty's life oh right yeah because we yeah because we as we discussed a few days ago um the alpha timeline is now this like you know the night of like you know broad church hellscape where marty's missing Right, <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> uh, I think that was on uh, that was on No Roads edition. I think. Yeah, so you're missing out if you're not a if you're not a Patreon subscriber. You're missing some prime, as existential dread. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So okay. So anyway. Um, so Marty goes outside and he and he runs into Biff. Now here's where things start to deviate a little. Mm-hmm. Um, so Doc has told Marty in, t- to meet him on the football field. Right. Uh, in this draft. 
and he's like, meet me on the football field, you know, when we're, we're, we're you know, we'll get out of Dodge, right? And so Marty has, uh, Marty has the almanac and he's outside. Biff shows up and he's like, hey, let's, let's finish this. And what Marty, and he calls him chicken and he comes back. But what Marty doesn't see as he's, uh, like taking his jacket off to fight Biff is that Biff has slipped on a pair of brass knuckles. <laughs> okay. And, uh, Marty, 1955, Marty, meanwhile, is inside saying goodbye to George and Lorraine. Biff and Marty face off. Um, and then Biff says, come on, take a poke at me, chicken. And then 1955, Marty opens the door and whacks Biff in the head. Oh. Knocking him out. And then he drops the brass knuckles and Marty realizes that he would have re- – that would have really hurt a lot and probably messed him up real bad. Yeah, so I was a cry uh, a little. And so he says – Marty says – he shouts to himself. He says, thanks a lot. And 1955, Marty says, you're welcome. And they both run in different directions. <laughs> so they actually like acknowledge each other? Sort of. Like That's- they don't look at each other. They just uh. – I mean, you know, like our Marty, Alpha Marty – Sees Beta Marty, but Beta Marty is too busy running toward the car to look back. Okay, that'd yeah. be funny if they did like look at each <laughs> other and then just like just yeah. merge. So Marty runs to the football field. Yeah, and there's this uh, there's just this funny thing where Doc is near the touchdown line with the flag rope, and <laughs> okay. Uh, and and Marty has to run across the football field, and it says that it's shot like a like a football movie. Um, <laughs> Marty is like running down the football field. Okay. It's like the only time that Marty would ever be in a in a football game, I guess. Yeah, that's uh, and he he leaps and grabs the rope of the DeLorean, and just as he grabs the rope, a huge lightning strike hits the flying DeLorean, and the rope. And Marty dropped to the ground. Oh, no. Okay. And Marty looks up and the DeLorean's gone. And he's like, what? And he he tries to get Doc over the walkie-talkie. And that doesn't work. And uh, there is uh, lightning and thunder and, and, you know, heavy rain. And so he runs over to the stadium tunnel uh, for cover. And... uh, He's like really like freaked out about what's happening and he's shouting for Doc and then he pulls this, the almanac out of his pocket and he's like me and my great ideas and he takes out the matchbook and he sets it on fire as a man behind him at the other end of the stadium uh, – the, the, the stadium tunnel like walks into frame and then starts walking toward him. Okay. And uh, yeah, so then he glances at the matchbook after he set the the almanac on fire and it changes to auto detailing, Biff's auto detailing. And uh, he pulls out the newspaper, George McFly murdered, changes to George McFly honored. He's like, well, that takes care of that. And then the trench coat guy shows up and he's like, Marty McFly? And he's like, is your name Marty McFly? And he's like, yeah, this is my favorite. (laughs) The trench coat guy goes, five foot four. Brown hair. Well, I'll be damned, Marty. I've got a letter for you. <laughs> I just like that he calls out Marty as being five foot four, <laughs> which isn't in the final uh, final movie. And I imagine it's because Michael J. Fox is like, "Don't tell people how tall I am." Can we not broadcast the fact that I'm five four? 
<laughs> it's it's just really funny. And it's and it's so it's so funny because that's all Doc had to use to describe Marty because it's not like anyone else being that size is going to be anywhere around there. <laughs> He's five around a football field. And he has brown hair. Yeah. You're a lot. No. <laughs> no <laughs> That's not that. a real person. No what, what is this, a <laughs> mythical creature? <laughs> a hobbit? No, no. He's, a, he's, a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a just a, a really little boy. He's an ice boy. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah. Chain. So the trench coat man introduced himself as the guy from Western Union. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, and he says, did, did you say it took 70 years? And he says, 67 to be exact, um, which is just because uh, in this draft, he goes back to 1888 instead um, of 1885, which is dumb because it's like, of course, 1885. That's so much cleaner. What are yeah. you doing? Um, and uh, yeah, so then he sees that it's uh, it's a letter from, from Doc and um, he – is like okay, well, I'm um, I'm out of here. Except he doesn't say anything to the guy. He just looks up from the letter after seeing 1888. He like shouts eight, July 1888, and then he just he sees the clock tower in the distance and then just runs off. And then the trench coat guy is like, "Hey, can't you at least tell me what this is all about?" And then there's a beat, and he just shrugs and he's like, "Guess not." <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, oh, that poor guy didn't get any answers. Well, um. Not that and then, are, uh, yeah. and then, yeah, and then we go, we go to uh, <clears throat> the end of uh, the first movie, and uh, it's exactly the same way. He he says, you know, you you did send me back to the future, but I came back, back from the future. Great Scott, he passes out, and then, uh, and then, uh, then they wake up uh, in his house. Oh, really? Which is the beginning of part three. Oh, okay, uh, cool. right, right. So, yeah, the paradox draft. Continues because it also includes the events of part three, which we won't uh, get into, which we won't get into. Exactly. So uh, that's that's where that and that is page 73. Damn. Is where uh, part two ends in the paradox draft. Wow. Or what so, would have been part two. So part three is really only like 20 pages. Uh, or 30 pages. Yeah, because this whole draft is only 114 pages, which is long, I think, for a screenplay. Well, it's. The the uh, sixty seven draft is longer. Oh well, of course. Sixty seven draft is one hundred and forty seven pages. Oh jeez, Louise. Yeah. The looks like a Tarantino script. I know. <laughs> um, the football thing is weird because it feels like a callback, but it's not. I, li- I you're right, but I also like the football field thing because I like it. I I like two things I like about it. Okay. I like that it's a new place. Yes. I like that it's cleaner because it's it's like, well, we took care of what we needed to take care of at the dance. And so why would we go anywhere else to do to pick for me to pick you up and leave? Right. You know? Just do it here. Right. So like I, I like I like that. Um I understand that, you know, obviously in the other version, Marty gets knocked out by himself and Biff gets the almanac back and we have to do that whole chase scene um to add an extra you know, 15 minutes to the movie, yeah, uh, which is fine. But I think I will say that the end sequence, as much as I love the whole Western Union bit and, and Doc disappearing and all of that, I do think just having it take place at a, on the road that we've seen like seven times before 
is a little boring. Like visually. Sure. You know? Uh, so yeah, I, I, I really like the, uh, the stadium tunnel and cause it, as much as I like the car mysteriously pulling up, there's, there's something really cool and spooky about a, a tunnel, a stadium tunnel and the guy just you're like looking at, you're looking at Marty in the foreground and the guy just emerges. is like, yeah, he just emerges in the background and just starts walking toward Marty without Marty seeing him. Yeah, like the cigarette smoking man almost. Yeah, I, there, there's something really cool about that visual that I like a lot. Because, um, yeah, like the, the like it's a little more threatening, whereas uh, the version that is in the movie is more mysterious. Sure, yeah, you're like, what? Yeah, who's this guy? Like... Yeah, but like the idea of it being like a stadium tunnel. Ah, yeah, I just I and I'm just like picturing how they would light that because Marty would be lit because he's at the edge yeah, yeah, of the and, tunnel. And like the lights of the football field. Well well no, like the lights like if you're in a tunnel, the tunnel's dark, and then you have that's interesting that there's another tunnel. They use the tunnel again. Yeah, they love tunnels, um, Bob's. Different kind of tunnel, but still a tunnel. Uh, but yeah, like Marty's in the foreground at the edge of the tunnel. And then the other end of the tunnel is the guy. So he's backlit. So you get like that silhouette yeah. of the guy. Well, like the but Marty is fully the, lit. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, and like, and the, the, the little fedora and the trench coat, you know? Yeah. I just like that. I think that's, I think that's cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I just I really do like the football field thing, uh, but I understand like they needed an extra fifteen minutes. Yeah, it was sort of a casualty was... of the movie getting split into two parts. Right, right. Uh, but visually, I think it's really cool. Uh, but yeah, so and what it's definitely you... it's definitely tighter. But you needed that additional conflict. What are the what, what's Hill Valley's mascot? I don't know. It doesn't say. I'm gonna say the capybaras. The capybaras. The Hill Valley capybaras. What, what, what is a capybara? A capybara is like a kind of a weird kind of goofy looking marsupial. Oh. Um, they have like they have like little little buck teeth. Uh, <laughs> small, like a kind of a, a big, a big head, but kind of like a small little body. Um, I think I think if I if I were to like if I if I were given the option of giving a, a high school a mascot, yeah. I think I would give them something really weird like like that or like a marsupilami. <laughs> yeah, the marsupilamis. <laughs> the marsupilamis. Like the Komodo dragons. I just like the idea that you you no one can pronounce like the marsupil like what? The yeah. mars- what is that? <laughs> and I just like the idea of Hill Valley like having a capybara. Yeah, like and no, Cappy the Capybara, <laughs> like comes out in the field. Yeah. Like, yeah, Cappy, that's great. Lorraine would like be in charge of taking care of it. Totally. Come on, Cappy. <laughs> so <laughs> let's. That's what a Capybara sounds like. But. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about. Uh, we got some emails, right? Uh, credit closing email. So this first one comes from Brian, uh, who says, "Hey, Scott." Uh, Nick in the news. Congrats oh, okay. on another. Say, Screw you. On get, he's, yeah. Hey, Scott, Nick and the news. Oh, uh, cool. Congrats on getting through another one. Yeah. He says, uh, back to the future part two has without a doubt, my favorite cliffhanger of all time, uh, which we've talked a lot about. Yes. Um, and he says that my question to you, besides back to the future part two, what are your favorite cliffhangers? 
Not necessarily in movies, could be TV shows, books, whatever. Scott, do you want to go first? Um, I think I think one of my favorite cliffhangers, like I love I mean, I love the Empire cliffhanger. I think it's iconic. It's probably mm-hmm. the most iconic cliffhanger of all time. Sure. So the, kind of like the, the defining cliffhanger. Yeah. And I like it too because I like when when other when other things uh play on it. So like one of my favorite cliffhangers is the cliffhanger to the series two penultimate episode of Spaced. Oh, uh, yeah. Where where they recreate the uh, the Empire Strikes Back and it sneaks up on you because at first you don't know what they're doing. And then you start hearing familiar mute music mm-hmm. and you're realizing that it's being shot similarly. And you're like, oh, wait. And then it ends just like the just exactly like Empire. It's yeah. Awesome. That's awesome. Um, so I, I really love that one as like a fun cliffhanger. But as far as like favorite cliffhanger, oh man, I I I think of my two my two two of my favorites are from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, actually. Okay. Um the season two finale where Buffy has to kill Angel and then like leaves town. Right. Is really good. I remember Everyone was talking about that cliffhanger mm-hmm. uh, when it aired uh, in school. And then I also really love the season five cliffhanger where she dies. Oh, sure. Here lies Buffy. She saved the world a lot. Yeah. And you're just like, how are they going to get out of this one? <laughs> you know? <laughs> Buffy uh, be in heaven. It's going to be just Buffy defending her life. Yeah, I really like that one. I also really like the Angel season three finale, the one that uh, it ends with uh angel being put in a cat in a coffin and uh uh thrown to the bottom of the ocean mm-hmm. just in a coffin on the bottom of the ocean Dead. cliffhanger season finale you're like um, what i'm a big <laughs> fan we talked a little bit about this with O'Gorman, but i'm a i'm a big defender of the ending of dead man's chest uh, right uh, with, right with the reveal of barbosa Um, I really like uh, the finale of Lost season four. We have to go back. Oh, that's a really good one. Yes. Yeah. Because just talk about, okay, you know, talk about set direction. Like you go back and you like watch that episode and like the, 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 the steps they took to like hide that it was in the future quote, you know, Uh like, like the, like the song that Jack, that Jack's listening to in his truck is like a Pearl Jam song for like 98. Mm-hmm. so you know what i mean like like they were just so good about keeping that yeah and like and anyway so yeah and that was really good um i'm a big fan you know this is kind of more recent but uh, i really like the season two rick and morty uh cliffhanger that was really good yeah yeah and uh and unexpected because you don't expect a show like that to end on a cliffhanger yeah and like mr poopy butthole uh, uh making a reappearance i thought was really cool yeah um we'll come back in like a year and a half uh, they actually ended up kind of uh, kind of <laughs> underestimating it because I think it ended up just being like a year, right? Uh, something like that, yeah. Oh, well, I mean, we're not back yet, so who true. knows? Oh, you know what had a really good cliffhanger? Uh, Scott mm. Pilgrim versus the Universe. How'd that one end? It ended with Ramona just leaving. Oh, right. Yeah, that was pretty good. And then season six opens, and like he's like Scott's been like just living on Wallace's futon for like weeks. Yeah. That um, one's pretty good. Harry I Potter. also, you know what else? You know what else is a really great cliffhanger? Uh, the paradox opens from the uh, uh, or par- parad. What is that? Pandora's what is the thing? 
Pandorica. Yeah, the Pandorica opens. Oh, in, totally. Uh, yeah, that was yeah. Like, that was iconic. Yeah, that was that was nuts. Mm-hmm. We were just like, oh my god, what? Oh, and um, of course the uh, the cliffhanger of uh, David Tennant regenerating. Oh yeah, that's one of the best cliffhangers too. And the cliffhanger, the the cliffhanger reveal that the old dude in that random episode ended up being the master. Yeah, um, that was that was really really great too. Uh, I think yeah, the, it's like from the master three parter. I forget what the yeah the first boat, part of the boat Saxon kind of arc. Yeah, yeah, but it was just like that random uh, Yana Professor Yana uh opens up his little thing and then it ends up being he ends up being the master that was really good and then of course uh i mean i think the i think the ultimate uh cliffhanger is who shot mr burns <laughs> that's that's pretty great yeah i i do really like that uh um, well, i know i won't be able to solve this mystery can you <laughs> yeah, I'll try it's my job but <laughs> <laughs> oh man i i remember when i watched uh when i watched i rewatched the simpsons last year uh, yeah the first 10 seasons and uh when i got to that episode i actually on purpose took a like a, a month break yeah uh, just because i'm like you can't just come back no yeah totally also yeah. you know not, not for nothing but i think the that has one of the best um uh reveals i think the best uh the best uh validations of a of a cliffhanger Mm-hmm. Because you know, no one saw that coming. Yeah, you know the the first part of every Doctor Who finale uh, is really good. Because in series one, it's really good too. Oh, yeah. where you're just watching that random episode about uh, this like t- TV station in the future, and then all of a sudden, like it turns out that the Daleks are behind the whole thing, and there's like thousands and thousands of Daleks, and you're like, holy crap, what? Mm-hmm. Uh, that was that was a really good cliffhanger too. And then uh, you know the whole the, the Missy reveal in season eight that was really cool. Yeah, but I think we I think we mostly saw that coming, right? Um, well, yeah, but. yeah. <laughs> I don't know. There's also some really good cliffhangers in like Batman the animated series mm-hmm. uh, and the Justice League. Uh, oh, you know what was a really good cliffhanger? I think uh, the Dark Knight. The Dark Knight? Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, I guess that is a cliffhanger, isn't it? Because you're like, what's going to happen now? Is he going to be on the yeah. run? Is it going to be a whole movie about Batman? Being- no, he's going to take a nine-year break. Mm-hmm. <sighs> anyway. He's going to have a bad leg. He's going to pretend to be Howard Hughes. <laughs> he's going to take a nine-year break, but finish building his Batcave anyway, because... Sure, just because. Just because. Man, remember that weird... That weird kind of like two year pattern of superheroes like getting knocked down and then just deucing for like years and years. Yeah. Like Batman did it. Spider-Man did it. Doctor Who did it. Yeah. That was weird. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So that's uh, that's from Brian. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Brian. Uh, this next one comes from Clay. And this is about. uh Biff Ripples. Uh, so he has a he has a question. If old Biff from 2015 goes back to 1955 to give the almanac to his high school self, mm-hmm. how does he get back to the same timeline that Doc and Marty are in in 2015? Shouldn't he arrive in an alternate 2015 after Biff made his fortune, more like an alternate 1985? And he said that there's a ripple effect, which we talked about on the show, uh, but he doesn't think that that explains this occurrence because with um 
with the 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 ripples only really work with like you know like the photograph and the first one and how we talked about how the future was like slowly changing but if you cannot you cannot the the rules state in the movie that you cannot travel uh from alternate 1985 mm-hmm. to back to the 2015 that we that we were just in you know so how how do we explain this well I've given this some thought. Of course. I'd like to hear what you what you think first. Okay. I Yeah, I just I I I think I think this movie kind of really has like some deceptively um cunning use of time travel, you know? I th- I think we come back to that again and again and again. Mm-hmm. And yeah, can I, can I just hear the last part of that one more time? I just, I just want to make sure that I'm, I'm hearing it right before I. Okay, so well, so ba- so basically, it's that if if Biff goes back to 1955, yes, give himself the almanac, uh, the almanac. He has then changed the future. So how could he travel back to the 2015 he was just in when later in the movie Doc and Marty? are in alternate 1985 and they cannot go back to that 2015. If they went to 2015, mm-hmm. they would go to the 2015 from that reality. Do we so, know what happens to old man Biff after, after, after giving the almanac to his younger self? Yeah. He, he disappears because he doesn't exist anymore. Cause he died earlier uh, in the timeline. Okay. In the alternate timeline, he dies earlier. Yeah. I, yeah. I, you know what? We were talking earlier. I think that is a paradox. How so? I don't know. Because, like, how does that work? You know what I mean? I don't think there isn't. I mean, like, what's your explanation for that? Uh, I mean, I, I, I'm not, uh, I, I think, because uh, the, the idea that I had was that the, the timelines were in the process of, of separating and so when he goes back the reason he's fading out is because he's like he's like like he's like in between timelines or something you Mm -hmm. know and so he's like fading between the two or whatever um but that doesn't explain the delorean coming back safe and sound i mean i think ultimately it it may be the one the one like the or at least the biggest plot hole uh, in the whole, yeah, because because uh, uh, we we had a comment uh, on the on the Facebook thing earlier that says that you know our our issues with how the DeLorean you know disappears in part two is kind of explained in part three and uh-huh. and I trust that you know so I'm 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 choosing not to count that as a, a thing you know right but uh but yeah I I I would love to hear an explanation for that from like an outside source that maybe has figured it out because right. I don't really Cause, know. Cause, cause the problem, the problem with, um, I mean, ultimately it, 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 it becomes a thing where if your plot is that Biff is going to steal the DeLorean and change the past to affect the future, then our heroes have to have the DeLorean again. I mean, cause the only other, the only other thing that they could have done was that like Biff and Marty, being time travelers are sort of outside of time in a way that time change time changes don't affect them okay and so like the change of 2015 would happen around them and then they would have to go 
and find the DeLorean somewhere, you sure. know, like yeah. find, find a DeLorean that's just been sitting around for 30 years somewhere. <laughs> yeah, that would be that would be the only other way that you could do it, because otherwise the problem is uh, specifically that you have to get the DeLorean back to them. But if the rule is that once you change the timeline, you can't go back to that time period, then yeah, he shouldn't be able to, and they shouldn't be able to get the DeLorean, but then the movie's over. So it just becomes a plot <laughs> hole by necessity. You yeah, know? It, it's almost like you can't really properly say that they just didn't solve it. Yeah. That they just didn't really uh, have time to. Right. It's weird. I mean, yeah. yeah. I honestly don't have a, like a, a, a theory for that other than just like. The other thing that they could have done was uh, they could have. It would have been interesting if when he went back, if something happened where they, they do the thing where, uh, you know, Marty gets knocked out and has to wake up or whatever. And he wakes up and he's in Switzerland. <laughs> yeah. Like, what? Kind yeah, like and, and like so, so he falls, so he gets knocked out in 2015, and then wakes up in Switzerland in 1985 with like his like Swiss girlfriend. Yes, because basically what happened was that when the ripple effect went through 2015, it changed it so that he never went to the future, and really everything that he does in the future has no bearing on anything because they changed the past again. So. Yeah. You know how great would that be if he like wakes up and it's like oh it's okay Mati you you are you are safe and sound here in the Swiss Alps Swiss Alps <laughs> yeah exactly he like opens he like kicks open his door and there's just like the mountains or it's like that scene in Matrix Reloaded where Neo right. opens his but 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 both him and Doc remember the other time so then they have to reunite from across the world yeah he has to Doc has, is Doc is 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 in uh Doc he, is in the asylum yeah. And Marty is in Switzerland and they have to get back together to figure out what happened. That would be amazing. Yeah, actually, he has to pull a, he has to pull a Bruce Wayne after he gets out of the Lazarus pit. <laughs> yes. And like, he has like a whole life. Like he has like a Swiss girlfriend that he like, doesn't know. He has like, maybe like a buddy. Maybe he has like a Philip Seymour Hoffman and talented Mr. Ripley. You know what I mean? Oh God, I would have, that would have been great. Hey Marty, you want to come, you want to go and smoke some cocaine in the closet? Don't do this to me. I'm your best friend. <laughs> I I just I yeah I I think that that's I think that's I mean that would be the solution that'd be the only way to do it is like the ripple effect just brought them back to 1985 yeah. because <gasps> they never went to 2015. What? Scott. Okay, so he wakes up, right? And okay. like Michelle Pfeiffer is like his like Swiss like cocaine girlfriend, right? Michelle, what you are just obsessed with them doing cocaine. What I, is the deal with that? It was the 80s, man. Okay, but if you think that's okay, check this out. So then he's like, I got, I got to get back to Hill Valley. I got to go home and visit my, my mommy and my, my friend Doug. And he's like, well, you should probably go talk to your best friend, like Benny, you know, uh-huh. knocks on the door, opens it. It's, it's 1989 Robert Downey Jr. Mm. As like his best friend in this timeline. And like mm-hmm. he helps him get back to California. <laughs> oh, that'd be so dope. That'd be pretty great. Uh, yeah, so I, I don't, yeah, I mean, ultimately I think the answer is because there wouldn't be a movie otherwise, and that's not a satisfying answer, but when you, when you look at, 
the problems that the scripts for uh, or that the sequels in general had, yeah, um, because of Zemeckis, uh, you know, having his attention on Who Framed Roger Rabbit, he was obsessed with finding out who did it. Yeah, well, yeah. So <laughs> because he was he was uh, set on that and wasn't giving his full attention to to Back to the Future, you know, it just. These things are going to happen when you yeah. when, when a guy who's used to writing with a partner is writing by himself. You yeah, know? and you know there's there's a reason that Neil deGrasse Tyson isn't a screenwriter. You know, right? The, the, they wouldn't be very emotionally satisfying movies. No, no, they would they would be really not entertaining at all. Yeah, um, because Neil deGrasse Tyson has he's allergic to fun. Yeah, but Cinemasins would love it, <laughs> or would Cinemasins hate it because they'd have nothing to 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 cover. We wouldn't know either way because they wouldn't cover it. Uh, oh, I'm, oh, oh, I'm really all right. Fuck, I hate, I hate, I hate. <laughs> Not a fan of CinemaSins. Uh, no. Um. So yeah, that's. Uh, I I don't. I, unfortunately, I don't have an answer to this. Yeah, Not. it's 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 just it's just a a, a screenplay burp. Yep. Yep. It's That's not supposed a, to. It, it it doesn't work. No, it do, it doesn't it doesn't work when you 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 really have to just sort of glance at it. You can't. Yeah. Uh, you can't you can't spend any time thinking about it because yeah, no, it doesn't it doesn't work. It it breaks the rules that it sets up. Uh, just yeah. bef- just right after that. Yeah. It's like it's like why you shouldn't think about why there's a matrix. Yeah. Just. Just why create an alternate? Just farm the humans for their energy and kill them. Don't give them a playground where they have free will and yeah. the chance to like realize that they're in a simulation. Right. <laughs> uh, so anyway, um, that's that. Yeah. Uh, so why yeah. Then, so why I guess Bruce Wayne just you know invest his billions of dollars into like improving community outreach programs and after school programs for children and well that's because he's crazy yeah he's a sociopath yeah (laughs) that's that's a pretty easy explanation actually um yeah so that's uh that's all we got for this minute that wraps up uh this week yeah Uh, one more half week yeah we have three more days it's like it's like the last remember the last week of school where like you'd have the last full week and then like the last day of school would be like on a wednesday or something Mm mm-hmm Mm-hmm. Like that. Um, so yeah, so we'll be back on Monday with minute 106. In the meantime, you can go to our website, duelinggenre.com. You can check out our other podcasts like uh, The Doctor's Companion and Geek by Night. Uh, you can also go to duelinggenre.com slash support and support us at on Patreon at the $5 level or higher. And you will gain access to the weekly No Roads Edition podcast which we will be doing even through the hiatus. So we're done on on Wednesday, but that Saturday, there will be a new episode of No Roads Edition and every Saturday or Sunday after that. Uh, so, you know, we're going to be gone for months. And uh, that's going to be the only way you're going to hear us talking about Back to the Future. And if you're not listening to it, then you're going to be missing out on a lot of great Back to the Future discussion because uh, we pull out all the stops on that show. Indeed. Yeah. So uh, so go check that out, duelinggenre.com slash support. And, you know, No Roads Edition, that's just one of the many benefits. There's also the Not Writing podcast that Nick and I do where we 
We talk about just anything and everything, whatever we want to. It's sort of our hangout show. And then uh, all of the Geek by Night special features and and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, the more that we get, the more the more uh, uh, Patreon supporters. We have lots of goals. You know, we have goals at the $500 level, goals once we reach 1,000, we want to do a live episode where we talk about Back to the Future, the ride. Um, I'll be really sad if we don't get to that one. Uh, yeah, because, yeah. I'm excited to hear your, yeah, I think you have a lot of, I think you have a big soft spot for that one. I do. I definitely do. Um, but, uh, anyway, uh, I might, I might actually, if we get, start getting close to like the premiere of part three, I might end up lowering that. I don't know. Um, but if I lower it, then we won't do a live episode. We'll probably just do a special episode instead yeah. of live. It's up to you um, guys. Yeah. So, uh, so anyway, Go check out that stuff. Become a Patreon supporter because, like I said, we're going to be gone for months. Um, we're not coming back until next year. So uh, if you want to hear us in the meantime, that is the best way to do it. And uh, well, special thanks to our Patreon associate producer, Leaper182. And we'll be back on Monday with Minute 106. Bye. See you later.